You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. Welcome to episode 111 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today, two, two assistant professors of English from Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, Danny Anderson. How's it going, Danny? Real well. How are you all? Pretty good. And Nathan Gilmore. That's me. Hey. <laughs> Our topic for today is Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, and we're a little behind the curve and a little off-center here, because everybody else was talking a few weeks ago about the 50th anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech, um, but we picked this letter because, well, it's longer and, frankly, a, a little more interesting to me, although there's nothing <laughs> wrong with the I Have, I Have a Dream speech. Uh, usually we pitch historical and biographical questions to David Grubbs, but since he's not here, I'm going to throw this at Danny. What can you tell us about the background of Letter from a Birmingham Jail? What was going on in King's life? What was going on in the civil rights movement as a whole when he writes that piece? And then what happens afterwards? Well, it came at a uh, kind of critical moment in the civil rights movement. There's uh, something called the Birmingham Campaign going on in Alabama uh, in reaction to uh, kind of a, a obstinate sort of segregation that was still lingering and refusing to um, um, be swept away in Alabama and Birmingham particularly. And one thing that King mentions in the speech that uh, does sort of precipitate uh, the the campaign, the the, the peaceful demonstrations, were, was uh, the the insistence on many of the local businesses in Birmingham to maintain the sort of whites only, colored only signs. Um, and uh, so the campaign then, uh, this the element that King is involved in, uh, is targeted at at that sort of commerce, uh, the commercial activity that goes on as a way to sort of um, force some sort of um, uh, change, basically. And uh, and they King mentions that they targeted it during a kind of high shopping season to have sort of maximum impact and that sort of thing. And during the um, um, the campaign, of course, uh, King is obviously arrested. That's how he ends up in Birmingham jail. And he is uh, kind of roughly arrested, actually. And um, there's like photos of dogs and all these sort of things during the, uh, 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 the, during the, the protest. And uh, so he's in jail and he's given, he's like snuck some scraps of paper that he scribbles this letter, this long, um, really amazing letter on. And it sort of gets you know, leaked in certain places and there's, it gets published in a few places, uh, over the next couple of months, um, things like the New York post and I think the Atlantic monthly, um, publishes at least excerpts of it. And, um, the, uh, it was written in response to actually a letter, 
uh, published in the local newspaper by many of the local clergy of Alabama calling for peace and sort of um, labeling King and and the whole uh, Southern Christian Leadership Council. This was a who was sort of the sponsoring agency, basically for this campaign, um, uh, as sort of outsiders coming in just to sort of label, uh, uh, cause trouble. Uh, the letter is called a call to unity, and it's sort of got all these signatures uh, who are uh, kind of trying to uh, push all this back under the carpet. And so King's letter is a direct response to that uh, call for unity, I believe is the name of it. And um, and so, and in many places in the letter, he he references arguments that they make in that letter. It's a, it's quite a short piece, actually. It's only a, a few paragraphs long, and so his response is. Uh, like reams longer than than the actual uh, discourse, but he uh, 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 writes this letter to the to those cl- clerg- other clergymen that he that his sort of you know f- brothers in Christ, as it were. Although there are also rabbis on there, and um, uh, it turns out to be a very crystallizing moment. Uh, this letter becomes instantly um, like distributed, as I said, and it caused. Uh, like, for example, the Kennedy administration to finally sort of get involved in what's going on in, in Alabama. And the SL, the Southern Christian Leadership Council, becomes more and more influential after this. And so their kind of um, profile becomes bigger. And King's profile also becomes, like, greatly magnified to this. And he, this is a – if you read the letter, it's a, a heroic piece of writing. And, and so he uh, – you know, his reputation skyrockets after that. And really, a few months later, it culminates in the I Have a Dream speech on the, in the March on, March on Washington. So um, that's a uh, kind of a brief little contextual uh, history of what the letter of the letters uh, time and place. Sorry, I really botched that. No, you did great. <laughs> the handoff. I, I'm still struggling with the handoffs. So, Nathan, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, only that, and Michael, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that this was a letter not addressed or not intended to be stamped and sent to the local uh, clergy association, but to be published in a newspaper. Right, so it was the genre letter. of the open letter yeah. uh, that has been, you know, somewhat lampooned here in recent years because with the internet, everybody feels the need to write open letters. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, it was, you know, decidedly something that was intended for publication. Have either of you been to the Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham? No, I've never been to Alabama. No, I, I cannot <laughs> say that I have. It is, it is worth going if you're ever around there. They, they have, I, I was going to say they just kind of lifted the cell from the Birmingham jail, but as I think about it, that can't possibly be true. They, they recreated it with all <laughs> the original furnishings and, mm. and the original copy of the letter in his handwriting. Uh, there and and the really amazing thing now it's been a few years since I've been there so I may be misremembering this but in my head after you walk out of the hallway containing the cell you immediately get to an open window a big like wall of windows that overlooks the 6th street church where the bombing took place so I mean, it's, oh, a, it's, it's a very powerful moment. If if indeed it's an actual moment and not something I've conflated in my memory, both of those things exist at the uh, at the Civil Rights Museum. I'm not sure they're exactly right, right next to each well, other. Well, listeners, refer back to our episode on uh, Ode on a Grecian Urn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so th- I mean, that's worth seeing if you're if you're interested in in King or civil rights or being a human being. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
because this letter really does transcend its you know cultural moment. It is something that speaks to the human being and everybody. I, I think so, I, and I, I think again more so than uh, than the, I have a dream speech. The I have a dream speech is a, is a beautiful piece of rhetoric that I think probably continues to speak to us today. But I think some of the, the concerns raised in Letter from a Birmingham Jail will always be pressing. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's get into that. Um, Let's get, let's get into that by talking about something specific rather than something general, actually. Uh, as we mentioned, this is, a, this is a public letter, an open letter, but the ostensible addressees are the moderate white clergymen in Birmingham. Nathan, what's significant about that choice of addressee, and, and how does King speak to everyone else as he speaks to this particular group of people? Well, this group of people is significant, first of all, as Danny pointed out, because this is uh, – on sort of a primary level, a response to a document that they had produced, uh, but also because the white clergy of Birmingham were in a particular position socially uh, in that they were expected because of their prof- professional position uh, to maintain peace among people who disagreed sometimes violently uh, about the right or wrong of desegregation, about the right or wrong of racism as an ideology uh, and King here is going to them, I think, largely because there are groups who assume that these white clergy agree with them about very different positions. Uh, so in other words, I mean, what King is doing in his choice of audience is he is forcing a conciliatory force in that white Southern culture to take a side and take a stand and... Uh, basically declare uh, what is right or wrong here. And I think that's important because, you know, really the position that the white clergy occupy would also have been the position that, for instance, the National Democratic Party occupied in the politics of the day. Uh, It would have been the position that a lot of northern intellectuals uh, would have occupied because, of course, uh, as I try to remind us frequently, Uh, racism was just as rampant in the Midwest as it was in the South. Uh, So I think that, you know, the choice of addressee here uh, is definitely strategic. You know, King could have posed this as an open letter to all the people of Birmingham, but I think he targeted it really, I mean, in a a stroke of strategic genius. Uh, Danny, I mean, is there anything else about this particular audience that I should be remembering since I'm not an Americanist as you are? (laughs) <laughs> no, I think you, you covered most of it. I think that the uh, the main idea is that it is other clergymen, right? And and I think that much of his letter, much of the kind of arguments, many of the arguments of his letter are targeted towards an idea, like a metaphysical idea of justice. Like this is sort of God's law that's being violated. And so we are all ostensibly agents of God. Let's sort of um, find a way to be on the same page here. And so, yeah, I think that's important. Well, let's uh, let's park on the notion of moderateness for a while because I think it's interesting. Nathan's already told us um, about King's criticism of these white moderates, uh, but one of the most rhetorically effective things about the letter, and I think one reason it gets assigned in freshman comp classes, is is the way that King presents himself and the other civil rights activists as moderates. Uh, why does he do that, and what does it tell us about what it means to be in the middle, Danny? Well. Um... This is an interesting question because it is a major topic in the the letter, if you read it. And I, I feel like he's 
in some ways trying to um, redefine what moderate means. I think the, the popular conception, moderation, as it was being conceived by the letters, the writers of the call for unity, is something about not causing trouble and just sort of um, keeping um, out of any sort of uh, activity that would um, um, wreck the status quo. And I think that um, King is looking for moderation as a point between um, doing violence and uh, seeing injustice done. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's a point that's not willing to allow injustice to be done while not partaking in the violence that would overthrow it. And honestly, when I'm sort of thinking about this letter, I, I'm reminded of kind of uh, like a Leslie Fiedler and um, maybe uh, 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 what's that? Oh, geez. Oh, no. A New York intellectual sort of uh, form of the middle brow. Dwight McDonald is the person I'm thinking of, um, which is the middle brow is just a, a kind of a, a, a category you would assign to people who don't want to like deal with kind of class distinctions and things like injustice and that sort of thing. And so um, the true moderate in King's view then is someone who is going to push that class distinction uh, and the sort of uncomfortable uh, that comes with it into the, the center. And so he speaks of uh, creating a tension that brings this injustice to the foreground, uh, making it unignorable. And that's something that they kind of, um, I'll use the term middle brow, can't really stand, right? And this is um, a big, if you read Leslie Fiedler, you see this a lot. Um, and then, and yet the tension that he's, the way the tension is being brought to the fore is through nonviolence. And he keeps talking about this idea of self-purification. They, they would the people who are participating in these protests um, put themselves through um, this training where they absolutely had to be certain that they would not react to things that were being done to them, dogs, um, batons, uh, whatever the police were going to do uh, to put this uh, riot down, because that would then bring out the fact that the police that are upholding this, um, in, these unjust laws, unjust laws are the actual extremists and not the people who are um, causing the injustice to be shown to the surface. Um, and so that to me is um, the conceptual framework that I sort of understood his idea of moderation. Nathan, Danny went to uh, Fiedler and McDonald. I suspect you're thinking Aristotle. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, this is one of those things where uh, for Aristotle, and this is part of the Nicomachean ethics that, uh, frankly, most people don't cite, I don't know if most people even read it, uh, but, you know, Aristotle notes that there are some virtues for which there is no moderation. Uh, so, I mean, for instance, uh, and I'm trying to... Adultery. I, I just, <laughs> is that one of his examples? Yeah, I, I, believe, okay, I okay. believe he talks about adultery. Yeah, so in other words, you know, uh, one either... Uh, commits adultery with, you know, somebody else's wife or one doesn't, uh, there is no moderation in adultery, according to the Nicomachean ethics. So, I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, King is sort of picking up on that tradition and saying that the moderation that says, you know, let's, ha let's just have a little bit of racism, but not too much. Uh, and again, that's not the way that the folks in Birmingham would have, or not the way that the white clergy in Birmingham would have framed it. Uh, but again, that's part of his rhetoric is to reframe their objection as 
a vicious moderation rather than a virtuous one. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, as most folks know, for Aristotle, for instance, the virtue of courage uh, lies somewhere between a rash, mindless aggression on one hand uh, and then a cowardice on the other hand. Uh, however, as Michael just noted, there are vices for which there is no moderate virtue. So I definitely think that's sort of the Arist Aristotelian angle that he's taking. I would also note uh, that, you know, the whole reframing of this thing is a contest of narratives inside of which moderation makes sense. Uh, so, I mean, you know, one of the things that King is very careful to do is to say that the divine will uh, is for the elevation of personhood in all cases, uh, and therefore that is the standard of excellence towards which moderation should point. A moderation for its own sake, King would maintain, and Aristotle would agree, uh, might misinterpret certain things as moderation when in fact they are deficiency. And I would say the difference between the supposed moderation of the white clergyman and the genuine moderation of the civil rights movement is the presence or absence of another virtue, which is courage. Mm -hmm. And I, I think Danny's explanation really got at this, which is the, the sort of middle brow moderation practiced by the white clergyman is one that keeps them out of the fire. Yeah. It keeps mm -hmm. them from having to make unpleasant decisions. It keeps them from having to, you know, put their lives in danger. Right. Whereas, right. Livelihoods. Yeah. Re right. Whereas, whereas if, if you're going to say one thing about the, the people who marched with King, it's, it's that they were brave. They, they, they stood up to unbelievable physical aggression and, and I mean, they were even brave in the Christian sense in that they did not return violence for violence. They, mm -hmm. they, they turned the other cheek, which may be the most brave action of all. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I think, I think the, the big problem for me with the, the sort of moderation preached by these white clergymen is that it, it is virtueless moderation, even if it's not out and out vicious. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I could just, um, go back to something Nathan said. It's hard for me to believe that he didn't have an understanding of Aristotle like when he's sort of writing this, given the names that he <clears throat> drops and brings up uh, as sort of the ethical background for what he's believing. Like I, He's obviously well-read, and so uh, when Nathan's talking about Aristotle, it makes perfect sense to me that that was in King's mind. Oh, sure. And I mean, you know, uh, Dr. King was no honorary doctorate. He did right. his Ph.D. in philosophical theology at Union Seminary. I think, uh, I think it was at Boston University. Oh, you're right. And then he was offered a job at Union Seminary. I always flip those, which is why I'm a terrible biographer. Uh, but yeah, so uh, he was an earned Ph.D. in philosophical theology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, in... in, in uh... When when talking about how brave he is, we are apt to forget how smart he is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. And what he gave up. I mean, he was offered a job at arguably the most prestigious mainline Protestant seminary in America and refused it because he felt a calling to work for racial justice in the South. There's shades of Bonhoeffer there, right? I mean... Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Except Bonhoeffer ended up... Well, I mean, we we could do a, a whole show on him, but he he ends up not exactly turning his back on pacifism. He continues to believe pacifism is the correct path, and yet he says, 
we need to kill Hitler anyway. Yes, yes. So I'm not, I'm not sure which one of them is braver. Both of them are braver than I am. How about that? <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. By the way, uh, because I'm sure we're going to get a letter from a listener or two about it, uh, we, we should probably note that King's doctorate has come un, under fire in recent years. For I, I, don't, I don't think there's any argument that he didn't plagiarize part of it. No, I mean, he did patch write the thing, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean... Don't don't confuse our praising his virtues with us calling him perfect. I'm not sure if anybody was going to, but you know. No, no, I and I, I don't think I was trying to insinuate that. No, no, I, I, I know you weren't. that I. <laughs> but I didn't. I I, I I could just I could just see the emails pouring in. Because you know, there's right, some, there's right. some people who really don't like him. Oh, I, and you know, honestly, I and I was kind of saving this for later, Michael, but I'm I. Sorry. I haven't read or taught this letter for probably seven years, uh, and just the very decided liberal Protestant flavor of it really struck me this time in a way that it didn't when I was, you know, in my late 20s, so, but we'll talk about that later, sorry about that. We'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk about something that predates liberal Protestantism by several centuries now. One of the uh, big theses in this letter seems to be the existence of two types of law. There's this lower human law and a higher divine law. Mm -hmm. Nathan, what's the difference between them? What happens when they come into conflict? And what ideas from theological history is King drawing on to create this distinction? Well, I'll start with the, with the idea of influence, because this is an idea that really does run as far back as uh, the prophets of Israel. Uh, you know, the idea that uh, the kings of Israel in making themselves a law unto themselves uh, are violating the Torah of Moses in the case of Jeremiah or, you know, violating an unnamed but assumed sense of cosmic justice in the case of Amos. Uh, and by the way, Amos is, of course, one of the prophets that King cites in this letter. Uh, you know, it is something that is as old as the Hebrew Bible, certainly Socrates in his trial, you know, makes a distinction between uh, what the gods would have him do, which is to seek out real knowledge, versus what the city would have him do, which is to stay out of trouble. Uh, certainly in the book of Acts, we have the apostles saying to the civic authorities of various Roman imperial cities, uh, you tell us to remain silent, but God has told us to do otherwise. Now, as far as framing that in terms of law, uh, you know, probably the most famous uh, philosophers who have done that are our Christian era philosophers, and we're dealing largely with folks like uh, Thomas Aquinas, um, Martin Luther, uh, you know, folks who want to distinguish between uh, what they would call natural law, which is to say law that uh, is in accord with divine justice, uh, and then positive law, which may or may not accord with divine justice. And for Thomas Aquinas especially, he is always insistent uh, that the positive law always comes under the judgment of the natural law. Uh, so in other words, you know, the laws that are written in the constitution of a city or a nation uh, are never final, they're always provisional. Uh, and what's interesting, and I always like to bring this up, you know, uh, when we're talking about medieval, modern, postmodern, you know, sort of the, the movement between things is that uh, of all the people who have recovered a sense of natural law, one of the most interesting is Jacques Derrida himself, uh, who posited that justice 
is that which cannot be deconstructed, but that any given iteration of what we're trying to call justice is always subject to deconstruction, which is always being pulled toward true justice. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those things, like I said, that runs from the Hebrew prophets all the way to the postmoderns. Uh, and, you know, King is definitely pulling on a venerable tradition. Now, as far as the specific outworking of this uh, in the in this letter, uh, you know, he says that, you know, the one of the things that, you know, the white moderate clergymen are willing to do is say, okay, there has been a a law decreed that we must desegregate, so therefore you must follow the law. And he says, what you need to be saying is, uh, this is divine law. You know, this is what God expects of us to live side by side with our brothers and sisters of other national backgrounds. Uh, and therefore, you know, if you follow that civic law, uh, it's certainly good because it's civic law, but it is imperative because it also comes from God. Uh, so he definitely, you know, uses that distinction. Uh, Danny, are there any other bits that I'm, that I'm missing here? Um, if there are, I wouldn't know about them. So I, okay, you, I... <laughs> you, you, you lapped me several times. There. All right. All right. I chose my addressees carefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Danny, let's talk about something I suspect you know a little bit more about. Um, civil disobedience. The the yeah. uh, the influence of Thoreau is pretty evident in this letter. Where where do we see it, and what does King have to say about nonviolence that's new or interesting or influential? Or yeah, I gotta say, for, I'm probably the wrong person to ask about this because I, I, for whatever reason, the image of Thoreau that sticks in my head is in the '80s when I was a kid. There was this MTV campaign to save Walden Pond, and it was like the face of it was Don Henley, and I was like, I can't, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> disentangle Thoreau from the stupid eagles now, and so this is my uh, uh, my burden for Thoreau. And so I, I remember and, that, Danny. I remember oh, man. that. <laughs> this, and this and, and MTV ruins Thoreau for a generation. I mean, yeah. is, there, is there is there any less Thoreauian figure than Don Henley? No. This is my his, point. Yes. With his guitar-shaped swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> yes, with his stupid eagles drummer face. Yes, I know. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, if he's listening, I apologize for that. So, uh, um, which I, I doubt that is. Well, case, and but, um, I mean, just to add one more bit. Is there anything less thorough than MTV? Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> he, he, I just imagine what his ghost would say if he, if he, if if he could, if he could see this commercial. Yes. <laughs> well, anyway, um, but uh, so getting past that though, I, uh, I there's obvious. This is obvious precedent um, for. Um, um, what King is doing in this letter. Um, and it, some of the places you see it is, first of all, the sort of context that Thoreau is writing ab about and against is slavery. And so that's a very um, kind of uh, corollary situation that the two, that give rise to the two documents themselves. Um, and um, it also uh, throws uh, civil disobedience, also sort of opens up a discourse of, uh, a space for the discourse on, on just laws, as, as Nathan's talking about, there's uh, Thoreau does his own sort of, uh, uh, sort of meditation on that. He talks about, um, things like I, you know, paying taxes for roads and schools are, are great, but I don't want to support the Mexican American war and these sorts of things. And so there are, um, there is an idea of the kind of two kinds of, uh, government and law in those, um, 
uh, in those documents. In addition, we talked about moderates before. I remember something in, in civil disobedience about what well, isn't just the white slaveholders in the South that are the problem. It's sort of the northern people who aren't who just don't want to cause a stir and disrupt their life of commerce. And so um, that was really one of the main targets of, of that uh, discourse, too. Um, as far as like distinctions, I feel like there's a different conception of civil, um, first of all, in civil disobedience. It isn't civil in the way that we think of um, King's, uh, you know, civil disobedience as being peaceful, like civil means more like civic, I think. Uh, it's mm -hmm. like a withdrawal from the public sphere. And I think that that is sort of one distinction that is, is maybe minor on some level, but it's also, I think, important because you do see something in Thoreau about withdrawal that you don't see in King. And, and I feel like um, his uh, idea of like, for example, I mentioned before, paying taxes for certain things, withdrawing from the support of the government at all as a uh, kind of civil disobedience, a, a disobedience against the civic is right. different. Danny, than, was, the, was the original title of the piece not Resistance to Civil Government? Uh, it's, I have no idea. Uh, oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> that, that, that's the way I always teach it, precisely so that my students don't get the impression that, well, you need to stop being so uncivil. Yeah, yeah, and I think that, that that's a better title, if that's, if that's true. Um, however, it's come down to us, is, uh, is, it's titled the other way. And so whereas King um, really has the opposite thing, it isn't just sort of withdrawal from the public sphere, it's entering that public sphere in order to be a catalyst, um, sort of a, a nonviolent catalyst for change. And so that, I think, is the sort of innovation that King, King's letter, at least, bring, and his actions uh, bring to uh, a, a similar kind of situation. Although it's obviously a, 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 a source text in some ways for um, Letter from Birmingham Jail. Nathan, do you have anything to add other than the original title of Civil Disobedience? Well, no, no, no. I mean, I, I like I said, I mean, I, I just think that, you know, the original title points to exactly what Danny was saying, you know, that uh, it's not that civil is not a modifier for the kind of disobedience. It is the entity which one disobeys, right? It is, yeah. <laughs> you know, disobedience of the civil government. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that tradition of... Uh, Again, resistance to the government uh, is certainly something that has Theravian roots. I mean, I, I would just add that it's certainly, though, filtered through the experiences and the actions of uh, Gandhi in India. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that's a figure that King often pointed to as another model. And really, if you look at what Gandhi was doing there, it resembles King a lot more than Thoreau's Night in Jail does. Yes. Well, um, Letter from Birmingham Jail has been a classic in freshman composition classes for decades. I'm not, I should have done some research and figured out when it first started getting assigned, but I can't imagine it was too long after it was written. Uh, do either of you use it in your classes? And what is it about this letter that freshman comp instructors find so irresistible? Nathan, you've already told us that you haven't used it for seven years. Right. And that's largely because for the last seven years, I've, I've mainly been using uh, ancient Greek texts in my freshman comp classes. That's sort of become my shtick. Uh, but I did use it when I was a, a younger uh, freshman composition instructor. And what I always found fascinating, especially in a state university context where I did a lot of my early teaching, was just how eager people were to use it who did not self-identify as Christians at all. Uh, you know, people who self-identified as agnostic, atheist, uh, just absolutely loved to teach this letter. 
and you know, I, I never did have the courage to ask one of them, okay, why is it that you're so eager to teach this Christian pastor, uh, to your students? Uh, if I had to speculate, I would guess because there's so much common ground that they could establish with their students through this text. You know, this is one of those things where, uh, like I said, I mean, because of a sort of liberal Protestant flavor that I really didn't notice seven years ago, I'll admit, uh, I think that, you know, there's a, a progressive with a capital P flavor to the letter uh, that, you know, someone who is an agnostic but who considers herself or himself progressive uh, could really latch on to. So, you know, one of the things about this letter is that, you know, it is a masterful use, among other things, of sources. Uh, it's one of those that, you know, he doesn't just drop names for the sake of dropping names. He doesn't try to hit a minimum source count. Uh, but every time he brings <laughs> And he in... changes the margins on the paper. <laughs> yeah, there you go, there you go. <laughs> I'll try this with 17.5. Right, yes. uh, but, you know, every time he cites the Old Testament, every time he cites the New Testament, every time he cites a Greek philosopher, uh, every time he cites an American writer, uh, it is always in the course of a point that he is trying to make. So, I mean, it really is a model text as well as something to be examined for historical import. Uh, so I think, you know, as far as its potential for good use in freshman composition, it's no surprise that this one is, you know, one of those classic texts. I, I especially think that, you know, the the sense of audience that we talked about earlier on uh, is something that, that bears discussion in that freshman compos composition context. Uh, because as we said, you know, there is an ostensible audience, uh, but then because it is an open letter, it's also going out to a much broader readership. So that's something that bears discussion and really kind of opens or did open back when I taught this text, my students eyes in a way that was really quite helpful. And, uh, and, Dan, and yet the level, the level of discourse stays elevated, even though it's, it's meant for a general audience. He doesn't talk down to anybody. It's, oh, sure, it's a very sure. intellectual letter. Right, right. Uh, Danny, did was this a text that was often used at Case or? Um, well, we all sort of devised our own syllabi there, so oh, okay, okay. Sort of, um, requirement of what we taught. Uh -huh. And I honestly have never used it, uh, and I honestly don't know why because it does, it is like a model essay in every way, even down to the point where it isn't mechanical. Like it's using all the elements of rhetoric that we are trying to train our students in, but it isn't mechanical in any way. And many, like these longer paragraphs, the voice becomes sermonic and, and it's like you hear the preacher like cadences coming through. And, and so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he's even like able to sort of, uh, go from the kind of template in, in apply his own personal voice to that. And, and, and just as a, a piece of classical rhetoric, um, it's if you're teaching ethos, pathos, and logos, I mean, this is an obvious place to sort of talk about this sort of thing. And yep. audience, as Nathan mm -hmm. mentioned, um, and it's one of those. Uh, and it's almost like it was the perfect piece of rhetoric in some way. It's like sort of the, the right, platonic right. ideal piece of rhetoric that is uh, makes it so valuable. In addition, when you have um, so valuable as, as for the teaching of how to make arguments, right? Um, in addition, when you think about the um, the social context uh, for a long time, and I think that time is waning a bit, uh, the composition class 
sort of morphed into a place to sort of talk about social issues and composition was sort of um, like we also did that along the way. Um, and, I, and I felt like that's probably one of the reasons that this uh, essay was so heavily anthologized in freshman readers is because it does sort of fit into the kind of thematic sections that those books naturally sort of fall into. But it's one of the better options for that because it actually is a great piece of rhetoric in and of itself too. So, I think this, the centerpiece of it, I'm glad you brought up the rhetorical triangle because the center of it is, is this long paragraph of pathos where King says, when you have done this, when you have done this, when you have done this, because students are always very interested in, um, first and second person pronouns yeah. in their writing. And, and, and this is just such a great example of how to use that word you to make somebody who has, by definition, right, never felt, never experienced something, experience on a lower level. Like, like you, you read that paragraph and you get, you start to get the slightest glimmer of what it must have been like to be an African-American person in the 50s and 60s in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and he does this, it, it, it's it's uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to say this. There, there's these rhetorical fireworks that aren't at all bombastic. Somehow, it doesn't mm, right. feel manipulative. It, 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 it feels like noble rhetoric in every sense of the term. It, it, mm-hmm. it feels like he wants you to understand this because he wants you to be a more virtuous person. Yes, you could say it's the rhetoric of a king. I would also add, though, I mean, Michael, just piggybacking on what you said about the second person pronouns, it's also a nice example because the second person pronouns are not throwaway placeholders for groups of people that remain unnamed. Yep. He really does mean you. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas so often, you know, in drafts of freshman papers that I'm sure all three of us look at, uh, you becomes a placeholder for a group of people that the writer hasn't taken the time to name. Right. I, in fact, so, I tell know. my students it's it, it they need they're all worried about not using I because their high school teachers told them not to. But but <laughs> the U is a much bigger problem. Because, yeah. Because yeah. nine times mm-hmm. out of ten, when they use it, it means absolutely nothing. Plus, they're speaking for me, and I don't care for that. <laughs> well, and here here's the thing: if they are intentionally speaking to you then go ahead and use it, rock and roll. But usually when a freshman uses you in a freshman paper, it is, like I said, a placeholder. It's, you know... They mean one. uh, Right. Yeah, yeah, which is also a placeholder. You know, they need to name that group of people, right? And I realize one is a little bit more polite in academic discourse. It bugs me just as much as you. (laughs) Oh, I'm not sure you you could handle French, Nathan. <laughs> they're uh they they use they use on uh like ten times more often than we well use one. and you know I guess if my students use dasman i would be I would be all right with that <laughs> trying to imagine uh a freshman using Heideggerian language <laughs> oh heaven help us all i don't I don't shove Heidegger down their throats until uh junior year oh that's okay. a, that's, a, that's very surprise. magnanimous of you Michael. I do what I can I hold off as long as I can. I'm kind of surprised, Nathan, you don't ask them to call you Dasman, uh, just as a, <laughs> a, as a title. You Dasman now, dog? <laughs> no, I, no I, I do ask them to refer to me as uh, Herr Doctor. <laughs> uh, the, you know, the, the, the best thing is teaching uh, Kierkegaard when he starts uh, rattling off about all those idiot assistant professors. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. Well, uh, for a relatively short letter, uh, King Sex is almost unspeakably rich. As we close this episode, let's go around the horn and point out something interesting or moving or important that we haven't talked about yet. And by around the horn, I just mean the two of you, because I have talked about the things I wanted to talk about. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so Danny, Danny, let's start with you. Well, I mean, this letter is written for a particular time and place, and yet it has lived with us because it's so um, timeless in its sources and its ideas and, and, the, and really the situations that will always be with human beings in their social relationships. Um, because of this, we, it still sort of speaks to our contemporary moment. And, and I, there's one thing that he says in here um, towards the end of the essay. He says, but the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity. This might be a, a, uh, a window into next week. Forfeit the mm-hmm. loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. And I feel like that is a prophetic sort of warning that really stands out to me, you know, some in the distance between now and 1963, 50 years ago. Um, I feel like um, it makes me wonder about the church and if uh, we didn't learn the lessons of um, negotiating away and you can, uh, this is, and you can argue the efficacy of, of King's methods or whatever, but you can't argue the fact that he was trying to find a way to negotiate, um, a balance between God and, and human civilization and, and trying to find a way to best uh, ex- express um, in human experience what God's sort of will for all of us is. And so I, I, I wonder if that doesn't really point a kind of damning finger at the contemporary church. That's interesting, Danny. I, and when you just now read that, I, it just now occurred to me uh, was King the first one to start using that phrase, a social club to describe bad yeah. churches? Yeah. I, I mean, that, I mean that, that's a subject for research, obviously. That's not something we can conjure immediately, but it, it occurs to me, hearing you read that, that, I mean, he might be the one who got everyone in the 50 years hence referring to churches that they don't like as social clubs. It's possible, right? <laughs> it is. It's an early instant instantiation of that term, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the, the other phrase that I picked up on this reading that, again, never occurred to me because it was just sort of a natural phrase was organized religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, well, no, because, I, I, you know, those are two phrases that if you don't like a particular Christian assembly, yes. you're going to refer to them as organized religion, one, and a social club, two. Uh, and, of course, both of those appear in this letter. I wonder the extent to which this is the pioneer for those devil terms mm. certainly didn't certainly didn't stop people from using them yeah. well no 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 what i mean is i mean like i said i and you know listeners if you have some research on this by all means bring it to us but i wonder whether you know this is one of those seminal texts not only for its ideas but also for the vo- vocabulary it brings to bear mm-hmm and I've got no idea whether it is or not, Danny, because, like I said, that phrase slipped right by me when I was reading it, prepping for the episode. So <laughs> it seems like so natural, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And I wonder so if he's the one who made point. it natural. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, at any rate, I, Danny, I'm, I cut you off there. Do you have more to say? Nope. Or nope. okay, I, I've actually got two bits, and one of them I alluded to earlier. One of them is what I didn't notice seven years ago when I was fresh out of seminary. 
Uh, and that is the very liberal Protestant character of this letter. Uh, and it's one of those things that, you know, I don't think by any means discounts it as a great piece of 20th century rhetoric, a great piece of ethical reflection. Uh, but it's certainly something to take into account. You know, the way that King imagines history happening, uh, he, he's very explicit about the fact that, you know, time is neutral, uh, that, you know, as time passes, what happens in history is up to the human species. And it strikes me that, you know, that is very much a sort of Hegelian uh, organization of the Geist, you know, or depending on how you want to frame it, you know, a Marxist organization of the proletariat sort of ideology. Uh, so it's one of those things, again, you know, I, and, you know, those are both ideas that, uh, you know, hold some savor for me. So I'm not going to say that they're bad ideas. But it's definitely a presence there in the letter that, you know, I hadn't noticed back in whatever it was, 2003, when first I taught this text. The other thing that I want to note is that when he is talking about uh, nonviolence, that's also something that I want people to note that nonviolence is not the point for King. The point for King is always justice. And I just want to read a, a couple sentences here from late in the letter. Uh, it is true that the police have exercised a degree of discipline in handling the demonstrators. In this sense, they have conducted themselves rather, quote, nonviolently, unquote, in public. But for what purpose? To preserve the evil system of segre segregation. Over the past few years, I've constantly, pre consistently preached that nonviolence demands that the means we use must be as pure as the ends we seek. I have tried to make clear that it is wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends, but now I must affirm that it is just as wrong, or perhaps even more so, to use moral means to preserve moral ends. And I think that, you know, again, that very, very philosophical meditation on uh, human action is something that really marks this letter as something worth reading and rereading and returning to, because... Uh, you know, that discussion of means and ends is definitely something that, uh, you know, comes from the Ciceronian and then later on Christian just war tradition. Mm. Uh, you know, a war in order to be a just war, according to Cicero, uh, has to be for the sake of defending uh, a republic, right? Uh, and moreover, once it is in process, uh, it has to be conducted according to certain ethical standards. And what I see going on in that paragraph, and again, this is one of the great, uh, great rich moments, to use uh, Michael's phrase of this letter, is that he brings that just war reasoning, you know, that comes down to us from Cicero through Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and so on and so forth, and brings it to bear on something that, by definition, does not and cannot involve armed conflict. Uh, so, you know, when I, when I read that, again, it was the first time in... Uh, several years that I had taken a look at it, uh, it just struck me, you know, even when he is rolling along, you know, making a distinction between, you know, the police who are using, you know, fairly humane tactics on one hand and then his own organization, which is using nonviolent tactics. He says, you know, you cannot equate them and here are some good philosophical rigorous reasons why you can't do that. And I just love that. So I, you know, that's those are, those are two bits of this letter that I noticed this time that I hadn't noticed on previous readings. Can I add one more thing? 
um, he answers a question that Nathan raised last week. Martin Buber is a Jewish philosopher. Uh, (laughs) Yes, Danny, I I did spot that when I was prepping for this week. I I, I had a hunch one of you would take me to task for that. I I have evidence, though. An appeal to authority. Yeah, Yeah, I I knew that I was going to pay for that one when I was reading for this week. (laughs) Although I think the, uh, the conversation where we took you to task for saying Martin Buber might be a Jewish uh, philosopher was uh, that took place off air last week. <laughs> yes, it did. Yes, so, so, yeah, so our, our listeners won't know how big of a deal that was. Ah, uh, sorry. Right, right. So, okay, okay. <laughs> mea culpa, mea culpa. <laughs> All right, Nathan, what are we talking about next week? Well, next week we're going to take up, uh, as Danny already kind of tipped his hat to, uh, a term that has taken all sorts of shapes in recent discourse and that is the term authenticity or the authentic so come back next week and you'll hear some authentic podcasting from authentic adults (laughs) (laughs) real life in the meantime you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com you can visit our website which is christianhumanist.org for Nathan Gilmore for Danny Anderson for the absent David Groves this is Michael Farmer saying let your sins be strong let your faith be stronger. People get ready as a train of coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the dealers honing. Don't need no ticket. You just thank the Lord.